is a season of preparation for Easter. And it's the 40 days leading up to Easter where we prepare our hearts for what we'll celebrate. Easter is the most important time of the year for us as followers of Jesus. More important than Christmas. And so it is also a season of repentance. And one of the key aspects of Lent is fasting. Some people fast for the full 40 days, and 40 days are counted minus the Sundays. They don't count the Sundays leading up to Good Friday. And so people will take away things like caffeine or chocolate, or they'll fast from social media. But it's, it's not just a dietary thing or something to get our habits back on track. The most important part of Lent is to set aside something important that can distract us from Jesus to put Jesus first. And so if you're uh, taking time away from something or, or putting something aside, you put Jesus in its place and spend time with Jesus. And we're, as a congregation, as a church family, going to start off Lent with three days of prayer and fasting. Now, if you can't fast for the three days, full three days from food, that's okay. Make sure if you've got medical stuff, you you take it easy. But maybe you can go uh, without something for a little bit of time or maybe give up a meal. Um, On our webpage, there's, uh, on our website, there's a full page uh, that will help you prepare for Lent. There's two resources there you can download. Um, One is just a guide to fasting in general. One is for Lent 2024 and what you can participate in those three days and beyond. Um, We want to be praying together for belonging and becoming and blessing as we're people helping people follow Jesus. But there's some other things you might want to prepare your heart for. So I encourage you to consider that next week, that you would take those three days and as a church family, we would begin this season of preparation. Now, it's a season of repentance as well, and that's our series for the next number of weeks before we move into our Easter series. And so it's not just something of preparation, it's something for repentance. What is repentance? The, the word repentance means turning, and there's a whole lot more, but sometimes when we think of salvation, we just think of half of it. Uh, we focus on the cross and uh, confessing our sins and Jesus forgiving our sins, but that's only half The other half is a turning. Not only do we ask God to show us, to reveal our sin, he doesn't condemn us, he convicts us, and helps us to change. And so it's a turning away from attitudes, character things, internal, external things that are not like Christ. And it's not simply trying our best, right? So I'm going to try my best to put away this bad thing and do this good thing in my own, you know, strength. Uh, Christianity is not about behavioral management. We don't have a gospel of sin management. We have a Savior who died to set us free, and he forgives us, he gives us a new nature, and and we're set free in new patterns. We set aside old patterns, we pick up new ones. And so fasting is a practice where we practice setting aside things that aren't best for us and putting Jesus first. You might think sometimes that Christianity is a bunch of rules and regulations and restrictions. And if we really restrict everything, then we'll really be good Christians. And that type of mentality draws us to change through shame, guilt, that we're not enough. And it's really just trying to earn our salvation or earn being loved by a loving God. And it just doesn't work that way. In fact, Romans 2, 4 says this. Don't you see how wonderfully kind tolerant, and patient God is with you. Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? 
Other translations say it's his kindness that draws us to repentance. It's because God is kind that we desire to learn new ways, that we desire to be led in his way. And we are not these, uh, in Christ, we are not these sinful people who are trying our best to be like Jesus, follow his model and example. He's made us new, and so we have new life. We are literally learning to be who we already are. As I said a few weeks ago, we are perfect, but we're in the process of being perfected, awaiting Jesus' return, when it will be finalized. All the stuff he's doing on the inside, he does externally in the world as well. We're resurrected. And so, we need repentance. And it's because God is good. And in Psalm 25, David has somehow come to this revelation. He doesn't share any of the backstory. He just shares the truth that he knows of how he lives his life and why. And he, he is walking us through how we repent, how we follow, how we're led, how we learn. But the reality about repentance is that sometimes when we're desiring change or when we think God wants to change us, we have some fear seated in us. Now, I asked Stephanie if I could share this, so I have her permission. Uh, when we were married in 1995, uh, it was before, uh, in between my third and fourth year of Bible college. We were getting ready for ministry. We were excited. We didn't know where we'd end up. And um, there was a song that came out that year. And it, it's a, it was a satire song. It's irony. It's meant to, you know, cause the church to realize how foolish we are sometimes in how we view God. And uh, it was called, Lord, please don't send me to Africa. Now, if you're from Africa, okay, that's offensive. So you can put in there, Lord, please don't send me to cold Canada. The snow is sinful. Something like that. I don't know. And so there was this sense that um, if we fully submit to God, and Stephanie was afraid of this, if we give our lives to God, what's he going to do? Where is he going to send us? Uh, is, is he kind of mean-spirited? Is there the sense that if we finally surrender, he's going to go, ha, gotcha, I'm going to really teach you how to follow me by putting you in the worst possible circumstance. And the reality is that's just based on what we've experienced in life, right? We've, we've maybe been uh, somewhere with someone who's tried to pay us back uh, when they get the chance. And so we have this false view of who God is. And sometimes the way we come to him is based on that. And we're afraid. God, if I trust you, what's that going to mean? If I give up my plan, my way, my habits, my patterns, what I know, what I'm comfortable with, even if it's not good, what are you going to do to me? Can I really trust you? And in Psalm 25, we find David has wrestled with these things. In fact, as we go through Psalm 25, there uh, seems to be movements. And we're only going to look at um, verses 4 to 10 this morning. But there seem to be movements there. And it's almost cyclical. Now, uh, the Psalms are songs and they're poems. And so um, you maybe did this in grade school. You wrote a poem like this. And David wrote Psalm 25 like this. It's an acrostic. And the beginning of each line is a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Maybe you did this in school, where your first line started with A, and the second was B. And the, or maybe for Mother's Day, you did M-O-T-H-E-R, and you wrote this little poem. And so David is artistically expressing his heart. God is speaking through David's 
artistic nature and his personality, but also God is sharing something to us through this. And here he goes through these movements, and he begins by talking about wanting to be led on the right road. And then he moves into a a second movement where he talks about remembering and repentance, and finally he's reminded of God's righteousness. So we move through the right road, through remembering and repentance, and finally to God's righteousness. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn there. You can uh, go on the Bible app, search for Country Hills Church. You can find it all there uh, and follow on the screen as well. Verse 4 and 5. Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. All day long I put my trust, uh, I put my hope in you. Do you know you can tell who you trust by who you let lead you? Now, I have really messed up eyes. I can't get into all of it since I was born. I've had surgeries and all sorts of stuff. I actually only wear one contact lens because I really only have one good eye and my bad eye is not worth it to get good vision. And uh, Ever since I was little, after surgeries and things, I wore very thick bifocals and I still wear those at night when I take my contact out. And so when we were on a family trip sometime, I think we were somewhere around Kingston. I don't know. Uh, that's what I remember. And something happened to my glasses. I don't know how they broke or whatever, but we stopped at some sort of mall and thought we could get it fixed there. And so while my glasses were being fixed, I mean, they wouldn't sit on my face, and I don't remember breaking them catastrophically because I think it was a Kmart pharmacy who fixed it. Couldn't have been that bad, but I couldn't see. And in my um, desire to to prove that my eyes aren't that bad. I want to lead myself around this mall I'd never been to, and I couldn't see. So I, I could, you know, I can see that there are people, and I can see, you know, where to walk and where not to walk. I didn't, it would, it, unless I'm running, I'm bumping into things. But I didn't know my way. I, unless someone's close, I couldn't tell who they were, and I didn't know where to go. But in my pride, I, I didn't want to be led, but I knew in my heart I needed it. And the only people I wanted to lead me, even though I wouldn't admit it, even as like a 9, 10, 11-year-old, were my family. Because I knew I could trust them. And I remember just outside, I think it was a Kmart, there was these kind of benches in a circle, maybe flowers in the middle. I don't know, I couldn't see. But I could make my way around that and felt very confident of that. But if I had to go down a hallway or in the store, go, I was utterly lost and I didn't want to confess it. I didn't want to admit it. And I knew I needed my family. This actually happened three years ago, not on the way to Kingston and not with my parents, okay? We were walking, Stephanie and I, into a New Year's, just after New Year's, a Kitchener Rangers game. Got just in through the doors and the crowds were pouring in and my contact fell out. That, like, never happens. And it was gone. Like, there's people everywhere. It It was hopeless. It was gone. And I couldn't see a thing. Now, We knew the seats. We'd sat in them before, so I figured I could probably get there on my own without Stephanie's help beside me. And again, I wanted to show I'm fine. Don't worry about it. But I couldn't see a thing. And I needed her help. You've been on those steps, Rangers, right? And I, I had to be led by the hand to our seat. And I tried to watch this game. All I could see was bright white ice. It was giving me a headache. And She had to help me back down and out to the car while I waited for the game to end because she really loves hockey and didn't care. No, no! (laughs) Our niece was getting an award at the game, so (laughs) she had to stay. 
I didn't want to be led, but I knew I could trust her. I have learned that trust and humility go hand in hand. And in a few verses, David's going to talk a little bit more about humility. I read something this week that said this. Trust is the defining trait of those who depend on God. If you truly trust God, you're going to ask for his guidance. And David says, show me your right roads, your right paths. Help me learn your way. Show, show me, you know, your way. Lead me. So David has some sense of humility as he trusts God for his future and his days. But there's a reason he says he can do that. And it's because he's experienced salvation. Now what will realize about David writing about salvation and later writing about repentance is that he's writing in the Old Testament. It's before the cross. It's before resurrection. He's waiting for the Messiah. He doesn't have a a full view of any of these things. As we look back, we can. So his wording and his mindset, we have to realize they're set in a particular time and culture. And so he says, you know, I've experienced your salvation, so now I know I can put my hope all day long in you, for all the little things. So I know you've got the big things, I know you've got the small things. And if David understood that with his, you know, limited uh, view of salvation, of what God would do, uh, typically on a practical sense, they would look more to what's happening day by day, the blessings you get there and then. They didn't have as firm a view of the afterlife. They hadn't revealed some of those things yet. And if David said, you know, I've experienced your salvation... So now I know I can hope in you. I know I can trust you because you've already done these things in my life. How much more should we do that? So in the big picture directions of life and the small decisions of our days, we know we can trust God because we've already experienced, for those who are following Jesus, salvation and hope already. And David continues, verse 6. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and unfailing love, which you have shown from long ages past. Do not remember the rebellious sins of my youth. Remember me in light of your unfailing love, for you are merciful, O Lord. Now, David is aware of his sinfulness, right? The stuff he's been through, especially in his youth. Anybody have that? You know, when you were younger, you're like, oh man, I made some bad mistakes. You might say to your kids or your nieces or your nephews or kids you teach in Sunday school, don't follow my example don't do this. I've learned this for you. Don't do this. And he's saying, don't remember the sins of my youth. Remember instead your unfailing love. Now there's a teaching underneath here that I, I, I struggle with. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you into my struggle a little bit. I've often heard people say, you know, God forgets our sin. He forgets it. It's wiped from his memory. You don't have to worry about it anymore. But the problem is, David is remembering at this time his sins of his youth. He's asking God not to remember them. And if God fully forgets, which I think he probably can in his all-powerfulness, he can, he can do what he wants. But if God fully forgets our past sin and we're struggling with it and we pray to him about that, I don't think for a moment that God goes, what? You did what? I don't remember that. <laughs> that doesn't seem very much like God to me. I think a better term is the word that David actually uses. Remember. And in Psalm 103, we read this. He removes our sin as far as the... Anybody know? East is from the west. North. 
East is from the West, if we're facing the right way. Two times in Hebrews, we read, he remembers our sin no more. I think that's a better way to look at it. God knows. What does God know? He knows everything. In fact, he knows more about what's going on inside you, things you've repressed, forgotten, things you don't want to admit, ways you lie to yourself. Do you know we do that? We like rehearse a situation over and over and over again until we come up with a narrative and a memory It didn't really happen that way, but it feels better to us, right? God knows the absolute truth. He knows what's going on in our hearts. He's known what has happened, what will happen, what is about to happen. He knows it all. And yet, in Christ, he does not hold our sin against us. When we receive salvation, God looks upon us and he sees the righteousness of Christ past, present, future. It's not some sort of positional, well, I'm kind of righteous, but I know I'm not living righteous, and one day God will fully me. We're fully righteous, but we're learning to be righteous. We are made perfect, but we're in the process of being perfected. God can do that. And so what David is saying is, "Don't, don't remember, don't hold these things against me. Instead, remember me in light of what you've done, not what I've done. And I think if David was writing this New Testament, post-resurrection, he would say something more like this. God, help me not remember and hold my sins against myself. Do you know that one of the most difficult things I try and walk with people through is forgiving themselves? It is, it is one of the most difficult things for us as humans to do is to forgive ourselves, even after God has forgiven us, even if others have forgiven us, to forgive ourselves because it sits there with us in our heart. And the enemy is called the accuser and and the condemner. And, And he brings it up again and again and again and again. And the memory and the feeling, it all comes rushing in and we feel like we did then. And we think God must feel about us the way we feel about ourselves. But God doesn't remember those things anymore. And may you see yourself in light of what God has done for you and in you and wants to work through you rather than in light of what you've tried to do for him or against him or away from him. And that's really the process of spiritual maturity. Learning to walk in who he already knows us to be. David continues, and he talks about God's righteousness. And here's where these movements of talking about, lead me on the right road, guide me, I want to trust you. I don't remember the things I've repented of already. Uh, Help me not remember them, and to live in your new life. And then he talks about God's righteousness. The Lord is good and does what is right. He shows the proper path to those who go astray. He leads the humble in doing right, teaching them his way. The Lord leads with unfailing love and faithfulness all who keep his covenant and obey his demands. The Lord is good even showing us the way when we go off it. Even when we're faithless, he's faithful. Even when we're angry, he's loving. Even when we're doubtful, he helps us believe in him. He works faith into us. That's that's grace. And that's God. And so David says, 
lead me in your paths, your right road. Help me learn your truth. Lead me in your true way. See, God's the only one who knows the truth. What's going on inside us, outside, what's actually going. Lead me in your truth. And help me not remember the things of my past, the ways I was, but may I remember who you are and what you've done in me. Why? Why can David trust? Because God is righteous. We can't see or experience his goodness unless we're humble enough to receive it. We can't trust in him if we don't believe he's good. If we think he's going to, you know, if we finally surrender this thing and we think he's, he's going to hoodwink us, he's going to pull a fast one, uh, finally he'll get us where he always wanted us and he's going to let us have it because he's sitting on high waiting for us to pay the debt. Well, we can't pay the debt because it's paid. Jesus already did it. <laughs> he did it all. We do have consequences of our actions. There's, um, we have to make amends between one another and reconcile and forgive. But between us and God, there's nothing we can do to make things right with him other than receive, trust, and obey. And so David says, those who are humble of heart, those who keep his commands, those who obey God, those are the ones who experience God's compassion, unfailing love, mercy, all his righteousness, all his goodness. This is the why behind the what. We can trust God. Why? Because he's good. God is good. It's his nature. So David asked God to lead him on right paths and help him learn his ways and help put old ways behind him and to walk in repentance and newness because God is good. And to remember that. And that's what he's experienced through God's salvation and it's what helps him have hope for each day because each day he needs to trust in the Lord and ask God to teach him his ways and ask God to lead him. And as he does, he doesn't want to remember what's behind but walk in what's new because God is good. Why? Because he's going to have another day where he has to remember that God has saved him and he needs to put his hope in God each day and he needs to learn God's way and be led. It's this cycle. And it's meant to be that way because when we are humble and when we trust God, we are dependent on him. In fact, David is echoing attributes of God that God said about himself way back in the book of Exodus to Moses. Now, if, if you recall, maybe you know, maybe you don't, but the Ten Commandments, they're given on stone tablets. Moses goes up the mountain, God meets with him, gives him Ten Commandments, and Moses goes back down and finds that the people are already departing from God. They're already off the path. They're already faithless. They're, they've melted all their gold and things into a golden calf, and they're worshiping this idol. And Moses loses his mind, and he smashes the Ten Commandments on the ground, right? And, and God calls him back up and says, don't let anyone come up, and puts the Ten Commandments back on these tablets. And as God gives him the Ten Commandments again, God is not concerned about the Ten Commandments. He's not concerned about the rules. He's not concerned about the religion. He's not concerned about the sacrifice. All those lead to one person, God. This is what God said. As Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments again, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed in front of Moses calling out. So he's calling out. And he said these things before. But he wants Moses to know this is who's giving this stuff. 
It's not about the rules and the regulations and all those things. But as you keep those, they're going to point you towards relationship with me. Yahweh, the Lord. So Yahweh is the Hebrew word. It's God's name for himself. Jews wouldn't even speak it. In our English translation, whenever you see the Lord, often capitalized Lord, it's, it's a good clue that the actual word there is Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Moses loses his mind. He smashes this thing. He's ready to kill everyone. And God says, come on back up. Come on back up. We need to get this straight. That, that's the God we serve. Learning God's truth and being led in God's ways are not about doing religious activity well. They're not about earning salvation. They're not about trying to be a better person. They're not about trying to be more moral, proving ourselves to God, being good enough to get into heaven if I just try hard enough. None of us are good enough. On our best days, even if you were perfect for most of your life, it's still not good enough. But God is. God is so good, he sent his son in our place, not only to die. We usually stop there. Jesus died for my sins. It's way bigger and better than that. That's why we celebrate not just Good Friday, but Resurrection Sunday. He rose to give us new life and a new way. And more than that, he sends his spirit to live in us, that we would be in union and relationship with him. Do you know how good God is? God is good. So if I'm summarizing all this, I'd say this. Trust in God for he is good. Trust in God, for he is good. What does that mean? Trust in the Lord. First of all, be, be humble enough to be, um, to be learning from God. Okay, so be humble enough to learn from God. Don't think you know it all. The moment you think you know it all, the moment you think you're spiritually mature, you have arrived, you can teach everyone stuff, is the moment you need to go back to square one and realize now you're walking in pride. Trusting God requires humility. Pride separates us from God. Pride is a root sin. All other sins come out of that. And so we need to be humble. So we need to be humble enough to learn from God, his way and his truth. We also need to be humble enough to be led by God. doesn't matter how well you think you can get around these benches around this plant or if you can kind of sort of see the Kmart sign and you think you know where you are and you've been through this before and you got this. You need to be humble enough to be led. Those who actually trust the Lord, ask him for guidance. Are you asking him for guidance day by day? Or are you just saying, God, please bless this thing about me or this thing coming up, or I'd really love for you to do this. I want this to happen. Here's this spiritual verse I think you should really fulfill in my life. Sometimes we get really spiritual about telling God what he should and shouldn't do, right? We need to be humble enough to set aside these things. So that's what it means to trust in the Lord. What does it mean that he's good? It means he doesn't remember or hold our sins against us. We hold our sins against ourselves. We hold sins against others. It's very difficult. It's a lifelong process of releasing others from the debt they owe us. But God's done it. He doesn't need to rehearse it. He remembers it and holds it against us no more. So we ought to and can confess and repent. We can turn because he's in the process already. It's who he is. And why? 
Not because he wants us to fulfill a religion good, but because he's righteous and he's just. There will be a judgment day to come. Everyone will stand accountable for what they do. Until that time, we know God is righteous and his goodness is poured out and he welcomes everyone freely to lay down their self, lay down their sin, and receive new life. One day that won't be possible because in his judgment, sin, sin has a price, sin has a consequence. It's not that God wants to condemn, but God has to. God has to, but it's, it's because of his righteousness, it's because of his love, and that's what we live in now. So I encourage you, if you don't know God, if you're not following him, turn to him, realize he's good, he's not out to get you. He's taking care of all the bad things you're worried he's going to judge you for. He's already taken care of it. And it's free at the cross and through his resurrection. So as we close, I want to ask you a few questions. Okay, I want to ask you a few questions as we close. First of all, where are you afraid to trust God? Where are you afraid to trust God? Maybe there's a truth. Maybe there's a belief Maybe there's a path or a road you think he wants you to follow and you're just afraid. You're not sure if you turn that over to him, what's he going to do with this? Is it going to be good? Am I going to end up in trouble? Like, is God really good? Where are you afraid to trust God? Second, where are you afraid to let go? Where are you afraid to let go? Let go of beating yourself up for past failures. Are you afraid of that? You know, Jesus uh, was walking around this pool in this place called Bethesda. And there's all these sick people around because there was this superstition that if the water was stirred, the first person in the water would be healed. And so they're all waiting. But there's this guy. He'd been there for years. And he never even bothered to try to get into the pool. Thought I'm too far far away, uh, you know. And Jesus walked up to him. He said, like, do you want to be well? What a question from Jesus. But it was the right question. He didn't. He loved to sit in his pain and misery. He nursed himself with it. And he refused to believe that God wanted to heal him, bless him, or love him. So maybe you need to let go of beating yourself up. Maybe you are afraid to do that. Because it's very comforting to wallow. It's very comforting. Maybe you're afraid to let go of your sinful patterns for the same reason. Our sinful patterns, um, they're comforting. Sin is just doing, going after a good thing in the wrong way. You can, you can classify all sin under that. You're going after a good thing in a wrong way. And sometimes we like that wrong way. If, if there wasn't some positive to sin, we wouldn't do it. And sometimes we nurse it. I, on the radio, I heard this term. I think I'm going to uh, use this from now on. Some of us have treasured sins. We treasure them. We don't want to let go of them. They keep them hidden. They, they bring something to us. We, we might not know. We don't like them, but we don't want to let go of them. And maybe, maybe it's time that you ask God to help you overcome your fear to let go and to let him make you new, to free you from that. Maybe you need to let go of control of your future. Maybe you're very uncertain about your future. Or maybe you are really certain about where you want to be in 2, 3, 5, 10, 15 years. And you just want God to get on board. Like you're a conductor in that train and you got the meal set out and you say, Jesus, you just, you come on in, sit yourself down. We're going for a good ride. 
oh yeah, I need your power to control this train, keep the tracks nice, make everything well. Maybe it's time to let go of the control of your future and direction because you think God is going to trick you. Because you think God is going to send you some horrible place called Kitchener in the middle of dead winter. And you know what? Sometimes he does that. Sometimes in our process of maturation, he calls us to do things that we don't like. But if he does, if he does, and he walks through suffering with us, he's alongside us, he doesn't promise to lift us out of trouble at all, but he's there with us through it all. And in any bit of trouble, in any way, he leads us to go somewhere where we're like, God, I thought I was following you, and this is hard, and this is awful, and I don't understand what you're doing. He's doing it because he's good. And because the story of redemption is working itself out in real time. The cross looked like victory for Satan, for sin. Jesus died. His followers scattered. They were afraid. But then Jesus rose. That is what God works in us. That's how good God is. Redemption. He redeems. He restores. He resurrects. And so when you let go of something and you end up in a place and you're going, is this really what you called me to, God? It takes great trust and great faith to hold his hand through it all when you can't see one or two steps forward. But you have to know that he's good. And then you can walk with him. How do we trust? We lay aside our pride, the root sin. We humble ourselves before God. We learn his truth. We spend time with him. We learn to be led by him and follow him. David said, look, it's those who keep your covenant, those who obey, those who continue to follow you. That's, that's the only people who experience God in this way. When we're not humble, when we're not proud, we experience God in all sorts of ways that are untrue because we project things on him or we assume things about him. Trust grows at least in three ways. I can think of three ways I'll close with this morning. First of all, set aside. So here's how to grow your trust in God if you're struggling. Set aside your pride and choose humility. These are all choices. Choose to be humble. If you don't know how to be humble, ask God to work humility in you. He'll do it. And if you don't do it yourself, he'll still do it. <laughs> right? Why? Because he's good. Right? And we need it. Second, set aside your time and choose time with Jesus. Set aside your time and choose time with Jesus. Because he's good. And it's good for us. Third, set aside our fear and choose to obey and live the way God is directing even if it's scary, even if it's unsure, even if it's new, because he's good. Trust in the Lord, for he is good. We're going to close in prayer, and then we're going to uh, close our live stream. We have some other announcements for you who are in person here. But would you stand with me as we close this morning? Father, thank you that we can trust in you. Not because we have it all together or not um, simply because someone up front says so or because we saw something on Facebook or... But because you are good. We know you're good. You're righteous. 
You tell us that you have unfailing love and compassion and you won't hold our sins against us because they're covered and forgiven and dealt with by Jesus. In fact, God, thank you that every time we're reminded of our sinfulness, whether it's the world or Satan or our sin nature, whatever it is that brings that up, thank you that we just have to look to the cross and be reminded that our sin is already nailed there. We're already set free. You're that good, God. May we know how good you are. And may we trust you in that. Help us to ask you to teach us your truth. May we learn to follow you, to be people who help people learn to follow you. But may we be humble to learn from you. May we be humble to be led by you and let go of all these things that are keeping us from the good ways you're directing us. Help us to trust you, to love you, and to know that you are good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated.